Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. Welcome, everyone, uh, to today's call on uh, the German elections, which are on Sunday, and they are the most exciting German elections for some time. Uh, we can say we don't know who's going to win. We don't know what uh, the composition of the next coalition is going to be. We don't know who the next German chancellor is going to be. It's the first German election for a very long time uh, when the incumbent chancellor hasn't uh, been standing. So there's plenty to explore, and these are important elections, obviously not just for Germany, but because Germany is uh, the most powerful country in the European Union for the European Union as a whole, and its relationship uh, with the wider world. And I'm joined by my colleagues, Thomas Gratowski uh, and Anna Martinez. Uh, Thomas, um, who's uh, worked in the Bundestag for a very senior CDU politician and is deeply steeped in German politics, and Anna Martinez, uh, our practice lead in Brussels, uh, who will be looking at the EU angle um, as she uh, swims, in the, swims in the Brussels bubble. Uh, so if I can start with, uh, with you, Thomas, I mean, if, this, if the polls are right, and if they're right, this will be a year of political change. Uh, we've gone from the CDU being ahead to the Greens being ahead to the SPD now leading. But the margins between the CDU and the SPT are still small, and in some polls they're getting smaller. So could you peer into your crystal ball and tell us what the likely results are going to be? Thank you, Denzo. Um, I think this is a very, very good question, and I'm afraid that uh, my crystal ball might be imperfect, just to say this in the beginning. I think you're absolutely right uh, by saying that um, the election is wide open and especially who will be uh, the largest party. Will it be uh, CDC, CSU, so the Christian Democrats? Will it be the SPD uh, or the Social Democratic Party or even the Greens? Uh, because uh, some among the Greens, uh, I, I guess, hoping that they might have a chance, even though uh, that looks uh, increasingly unlikely. Now, why the election is still so wide open also is that because about uh, a quarter to a third of all voters uh, were still undecided in the last couple of days, which is uh, quite remarkable uh, given that uh, now we're only two days um, uh, away from, from the election. Um, but I think as such, what we can, uh, can say uh, so far, uh, at least if we, if we trust uh, the polls, uh, is that uh, CDU and uh, CDU and SPD will will fight for the first uh, for the first position, um, both probably in the the uh, lower to to mid twenties. Uh, we will see the Green Party as the third largest party, um, and uh, with significant gains in compare comparison to 2017. And then we'll see uh, the AFD and the FDP, uh, so the Liberal FDP, um, basically fighting for fourth place, and the Linke will likely come in as, as six. Now, um, you know, this time the arithmetic will be quite complicated because uh, actually uh, it's quite unlikely that any two-party coalition uh, would be possible after this election. Um, perhaps a grand coalition, but we can talk about this later. Uh, and, and so it will be a really uh, complicated uh, uh, result uh, for parties to deal with. Uh, before we, we go to some of that, I think a key question on Sunday night is how the result will be, inter will be interpreted. Uh, 
I think one, one line of interpretation that we can already see is that Germany will see a swing to the left. Uh, this is due to you know, the Greens very much you know, outperforming uh, their 2017 results. Uh, it's also the SPD actually uh, having made significant gains uh, uh, on the federal level, if we trust at least uh, latest polls. And, uh, and I think that's important, even though the SPD is still, you know, probably far away from, from uh, the 30 percentage, uh, 30 percent uh, uh, mark, uh, we also have uh, state elections on Sunday uh, in Berlin and in Mecklenburg-Vorpommern. And in both states, actually, the SPD has gained dramatically in the polls in, in the last month, um, gained more than 10 percentage points, uh, for example, in Mecklenburg-Vorpommern. So it will be hard to fully discard uh, that uh, SPD and Greens uh, will be, you know, seen as, as the winner of the election. Now, but as I said, the question is to some extent, you know, by how much the SPD uh, wins and, and whether even if they become the largest party, uh, by how much they would actually be, uh, be uh, ahead of uh, CDU, CSU. And um, for example, the liberal FDP has very much emphasized that uh, the SPD uh, will not automatically be seen as having a mandate from a government just by having one or two percentage points more than CDU CSU. For example, in 2002, uh, you know, CDU CSU came in as the largest party, but uh, SPD and Green still decided to form form a government because they had uh, the majority together. So there's not an automatism uh, from being the largest party to really then forming a government. Uh, all this means that we might actually not know on Sunday night uh, who will be Germany's next chancellor uh, because of the, the complicated um, situation and because of the many uh, coalition options that, that might be possible. And it would likely not to know for months. That is, uh, that is a possibility as well. I mean, if we remember 2017, um, uh, we had a, a first round of coalition uh, talks which broke down after about two months. And it took then another three months to actually form uh, form a government, uh, and until we actually knew uh, what uh, type of coalition Germany would see, uh, and that is obviously uh, something that we could uh, see in this election as well. And uh, since I talked about the interpretation of this, <laughs> even if we speak perhaps on Sunday night about a swing to the left, the the end result might still be. Uh, that the Greens actually become more of a centrist party as a result of this election, uh, because uh, because they might join forces with Christian Democrats and liberals. Uh, so, so uh, you know, the Sunday Sunday will obviously be, um, or, or the, the the initial reaction to the election will obviously be very important. But the ensuing weeks will actually then crystallize uh, where where majority is actually politically feasible. Yes. Well, uh, Anna, I'm sure Brussels is as gripped as, uh, as the rest of us, if not more so by, by what's happening. I mean, Germany is the EU's biggest economy. Angela Merkel has for years been its leading political figure. And her departure is a big moment for the EU. So can you tell us what people in Brussels are looking at and what they are worrying about and what they're hoping for from, from Sunday night? Definitely. Thank you, Denzel. I think uh, the biggest and most significant impact of a change in the German government at EU level is the consequences it will have in the council, where the balance of power could potentially shift quite significantly. 
um, you know, the center-right Europeans People Party or EPP has been the largest group in the council uh, for a while now, uh, and it has undoubtedly uh, gotten used to that position. Um, and if uh, there's no chancellor from the CDU, um, the EPP would most likely lose their largest member and in turn its status as the largest group in the council. Uh, so leaders um, across member states from the EPP family will most likely be biting their nails uh, this weekend because in reality, they're the ones that have the most to lose um, in, in this election. If on the other hand, you have a chancellor, um, you know, like Schultz, the, the leader of the SPD, then the, the center left socialists and Democrats um, in the council would become the largest group. And Schultz would be breaking um, kind of a trend that we've seen happen across most EU capitals in the latest elections, where basically the socialists or the social democrats have been losing ground um, with the exception perhaps of, of Spain and, and Portugal. And like Thomas was, was mentioning at the beginning, although it's a bit uh, less unlikely than at the beginning of the, of the year, um, having a chancellor from the Greens, um, you know, it, it would be the biggest win for um, the, the Green group, let's say. But they have no head of government in the European Council at all. I don't think they ever have. Exactly. So then they they would suddenly, for the very first time, um, have a, a place in, in the highest level of EU decision making. Um, it would be, um, they, they would further diminish also uh, the power and the weight of the grand coalition between the EPP and the SND, which is actually something that we've seen already happen in the last European Parliament um, elections. Well, thank you very much for that, Anna. Uh, of course, uh, we just should probably pause at this point as we build up a small mountain of supposition because this all rests on the polls. And uh, Thomas, can I get a, just a quick take from you? Now, how right are we to, to trust the polls? How good a record are they? How do they have? How reliable? That's a very good question. Um, I already alluded to the, the high number of undecided voters. Uh, that's certainly a factor um, that we should uh, keep in mind uh, while interpreting the numbers. There are also two effects, I think, that are important um, uh, and that uh, bring uh, additional uncertainty to the numbers that we have seen in, in recent weeks, even though the numbers um, have been fairly consistent uh, across uh, different polls. Uh, but let me explain that. Uh, the first one is the incumbency effect. Uh, so we've seen in recent state elections uh, that polls often um, underestimated uh, support for the ruling party, especially if uh, the, the prime minister of the ruling party uh, enjoyed a high level of popularity. So for instance, in June, uh, we had state elections in Saxony-Anhalt um, where you know, uh, the, the prime minister Rainer Hasselhoff uh, won by a much uh, a wider margin than was originally uh, expected. And that's something we have seen across uh, state elections. But now the challenge is, of course, that there's no incumbent. And you might even argue that, that Olaf Scholz, uh, you know, the current vice chancellor and federal finance minister is, is more of an incumbent than actually the, the candidate of CDU-CSU. So 
Armin Laschet, who is supposed to be uh, Merkel's successor, uh, appears to be uh, almost uh, like an opposition politician uh, to some extent, and also in some of the, the TV debates that we've seen, than Olaf Scholz. Uh, so that certainly um, uh, increases the, the uncertainty uh, about you know, whether CDU or SPD will actually benefit from that. Um, and ultimately, it might actually benefit uh, Scholz, um, who has you know, consistently had much higher approval ratings uh, than, than Laschet on a, uh, on a personal uh, level. The second factor is uh, the pandemic. Obviously, we shouldn't forget uh, that this election still takes place um, at um, an extraordinary uh, time. Uh, we've seen 18 months of, of a pandemic uh, that has uh, you know, affected every, everyone and every part of everyone's life. Um, and, and I think uh, in the past, uh, pollsters have learned to, to deal with the AFD. Uh, you know, when the party first appeared, uh, pollsters often underestimated their support. Uh, pollsters had learned uh, to deal with the AFD uh, better, but I think um, in the pandemic, uh, we might actually see, you know, support for the AFD uh, stronger than, than pollsters uh, expect uh, in, uh, in, in, in the polls. Uh, so these are two or two factors perhaps that uh, we should keep in mind um, when interpreting the numbers. Well, it's always nice to have an added factor or two of uncertainty. Um, can I ask you a further question? So, as we've discussed a bit, in Germany, with a PR system, essentially a PR system, uh, a coalition is inevitable. Uh, but of course, the outcomes will depend on the final electoral maths, and uh, relatively small changes in that could make a very significant difference as to what combinations are possible. And many of these combinations have wonderful exotic names like the Jamaica Coalition or the Traffic Light Coalition or the Kenya Coalition. Um, and uh, this is all the more so as German politics has been going a bit Dutch and is becoming increasingly fragmented. And the the the, the Volkspartei, the you know the big parties, the SPD and the CDU, have been losing support, and the smaller parties have been ga gaining it. So, can you talk us through a bit further on, on the likely coalition outcomes? And quite importantly, can you tell us who is going to be in charge of the party's coalition talks? Uh, who's actually going to be deciding what their policy should be towards other coalition partners and what effect this will have? How long? I mean, we've discussed months, but what do you think? What's your best guess before we have a, a, a German chancellor with a new electoral mandate? There are quite a few questions there, so, so take <laughs> your time. Quite, uh, uh, very important questions, quite a few questions, as you, as you said. Um, Maybe to start with, I think it's quite extraordinary um, uh, that today we discuss whether a grand coalition would still have a majority in the in the next Bundestag. Um, you know, if if we have had uh, had this discussion a couple of years ago, um, you know, it would have been a no-brainer that a grand coalition, of course, has a majority. But as you as you explained, fragmentation has been uh, really um, uh, has really left its mark on the German political landscape in the last couple of years, uh, which is why. Uh, you know, it's it's very much unclear whether a grand coalition um, would have a majority. Um, maybe, uh, you know, the latest polls suggest that they might, uh, but I think politically um, both sides are quite clear that they don't, don't want uh, another grand coalition. Uh, basically, the last 12 or 16 years, we, we saw a grand coalition, and obviously that has contributed to the fragmentation and to the rise of the parties uh, on, on the margins. Now, 
I, I would say that the base case uh, perhaps is that we see a coalition between the Greens and the SDP plus either the Social Democrats or the Christian Democrats. Um, of course, so, so basically the base case is, is, is uh, you might say, two coalition options. Um, the, the, the green uh, FDP CDU option uh, is the Jamaica uh, option uh, because of the, the color of, of the parties. Um, failed in 2017. Um, the FDP didn't trust Merkel at the time. Um, but now seems to be the preferred option of CDU, CSU and FDP. And perhaps also uh, for some within the green part. Um, Olaf Scholz, of course, hopes that a traffic light uh, coalition uh, might be possible under his leadership. Um, he has tried to, to reach out to the FDP, um, but I think in many uh, areas, especially when it comes to tax, which is a core area for, uh, for the FDP, um, there, are, there are many reservations uh, for, for this uh, coalition option, um, where basically the, the FDP would be uh, you know, a, a small partner uh, with, um, with a very much center-left-led, uh, in a very much center-left-led uh, uh, coalition. Um, so, so that leaves me to believe that actually, even if the SPD becomes, you know, by a small margin, largest party, um, you know, I wouldn't rule out still Jamaica under this um, uh, scenario. Now, uh, lastly, of course, uh, we have a potential red-red uh, coalition, so a coalition involving the SPD, Greens, and the far-left, uh, Die Linke, um, which might be mathematically possible, uh, but I still believe it's actually quite unlikely. Um, you know, especially when it comes to foreign policy, um, the link is still very much uh, uh, far away from, uh, from accepting uh, the role of, of NATO, the role of the EU, uh, you know, accepting that uh, Germany uh, has responsibilities uh, internationally and might also use the Bundeswehr, the army, uh, to, uh, for those um, you know, to, to be engaged in crisis situations and so on. So I think it, it might be possible, but I think it's still very unlikely. It might also of uh, Olaf Scholz uh, as a bit of a threat uh, to basically get the FDP to agree to a, uh, to a traffic light uh, coalition if, if, uh, if nothing else seems, seems possible. Um, so, so Thomas, if I could just uh, yeah. interrupt you there. Uh, the, I mean, clearly it makes sense for Olaf well, Scholz. It means that, he, as you say, he's had some leverage. He has an alternative, a walkaway option with the with the FDP, but he's made it fairly clear that it isn't his preference. But the, yeah. the wrinkle is that Olaf Scholz is the is the chancellor candidate for the SPD, but he isn't the party's leader. And uh, what do you think? How much sway will he have over the SPD's approach to the coalition negotiations? Yeah, that's a good question, uh, and maybe I should quickly explain how how that is uh, how this how this normally works in practice. Um, so uh, after after the, the election uh, on, on Monday, all the parties uh, will obviously meet um, and discuss internally uh, how to proceed. And then in the in the following weeks, we'll probably see a round uh, rounds of preliminary coalition talks, and these are normally led by you know a small group uh, of uh, the party uh, leadership. Um, and then once you know a decision has been taken, uh, negotiations then involve uh, many more, uh, many more people. Um, normally, you have a negotiation uh, plenum, which can be up to 100 people. Then you have subcommittees, 
often around 10 to 15, which might have up to 20 members. So then it becomes a very large exercise. But uh, the interesting dynamics might actually be uh, not only within the SPD, but among all the major parties, how uh, you know the party leadership and their candidates uh, can actually work together. Um, as you rightly said, Scholz is not uh, the leader of his party, uh, but Saskia Esken and uh, Norbert Walter-Borjans, who defeated him in the leadership election, uh, uh, they will, together with Scholz and others, uh, be leading the preliminary coalition talks. And they will need to reach a common position on uh, what their preferred options are, how they interpret the results, and in what direction they would want to take uh, uh, a, a new government that they would join. We, we will though see a similar similar interesting dynamics also on the side of CDU, CSU and, and the Greens. Uh, on the CDU side, obviously, Laschet uh, will need to bring in Söder in these coalition talks. Uh, you know, Söder, who himself wanted to become chancellor. Uh, and then uh, among the Greens, uh, it's no secret that uh, Habeck himself wanted to be the candidate uh, for, for chancellor. Uh, and, and Baerbock at least if you believe the polls, rather mediocre result uh, will certainly lead to new ambitions uh, for Habeck as well. So we'll uh, see within those preliminary talks um, how, how actually the, the party leadership can, uh, can agree on, 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 a, on an approach uh, post-election and, and perhaps also some, some shifting power dynamics within, uh, within the, the leaderships. Well, so we are facing a multiplicity of math math mathematically possible coalition options garnered with unfulfilled personal ambition. It will be fascinating to see what happens. Anna, uh, going back to you, uh, you've talked a bit about what uh, change in leadership in Berlin would mean for the balance of political power in the council and a bit about the parliament and the grand coalition there. But I want to ask you about the, about the commission. What does it mean for uh, commission president von der Leyen in particular? Well, as many of you know, Merkel is a strong supporter of von der Leyen, uh, but one must not forget that actually uh, von der Leyen was put forward by the French President Emmanuel Macron in 2019. So um, although it is true that von der Leyen is losing an ally in Merkel, um, I think she still has one of her biggest fans, let's, you know, to put it that way, um, uh, still. And I would expect von der Leyen moving forward uh, to lean more heavily on Macron once Merkel is, is gone. And, and this is, of course, assuming that uh, Macron will remain in power after the French presidential elections uh, next year. Um, and I'm sure that people listening to us today also uh, tune in uh, to listen to von der Leyen's um, state of the EU speech last week. And I mention it because we already saw some of those shifts and, and movements in how she was talking. And, and she made several references to France in her speech, for instance, in her call for a more autonomous European defense union uh, and a dedicated summit during the French EU presidency next year. Um, her speech also indicated a shift to appeal to the members of the European Parliament, where if you remember, she didn't initially have a lot of support 
um, to, to begin with, um, and particularly to appeal to the center left MEPs. So she placed at the forefront uh, of the commission's priorities issues that are particularly important to, to the center left, uh, such as you know, social policy, uh, taxation, uh, and um, inclusive economic uh, recovery from, from the pandemic. Thank you, Anna. Um, now, obviously, the leadership of a country isn't just about a party or parties, but it's also about a person. And Angela Merkel has been one of the EU's great solution finders for the past 16 years. And I've seen it myself in my previous lives. Uh, you know, she has often been the one who's been effectively the president of the council, putting together compromised works for everyone in the room. So what does her departure mean for Germany's position in the EU and the EU's leadership? So there's no question that, as you say, 16 years of experience in the European Council will be extremely difficult to, to replace. Um, it will not be easy for the next German Chancellor to fill her shoes. Like you say, not only because uh, of her links or the links relationships she's created with other leaders, but also because of her drive and, as you say, experience reaching agreements um, with other member states. So as a result, I think Germany is expected or likely to take more of a backseat when it comes to EU decision making, perhaps not only because of the personality or capabilities of the, the next chancellor, but also as a consequence of the makeup of, of the new government. Um, you know, we were talking about this just earlier uh, and you gave the example of the Netherlands. Well, obviously a country like the Netherlands, you know, which is used to having multiple parties in government does not make decisions the same way a country, let's say like Spain does where, you know, having two parties in government is, is, is quite new. Um, but the consequences go beyond uh, Germany's position in the EU. It also affects the EU's leadership and ability to bridge the gap between member states. Um, and I think one of the big questions is whether other EU leaders might step up and um, aim to take the space that Germany will likely leave empty. Um, and here I'm thinking in particular of um, experienced leaders such as you know, Italy's Mario Draghi or Emmanuel Macron or Mark Rutte. But I think um, it is too early to say, and it remains to be seen, um, whether these moves will take place. Uh, and we will, of course, be looking out for any changes in behavior um, in the next uh, European Council summits. Yes, well, I mean, speaking from what I observed, what I always thought was extraordinary about her, what made her an exemplary statesman, was that she was interested in not just you know, Germany's immediate goals, the solutions that work for Germany, but solutions that could be acceptable all around the table. And it's that willingness to take others' interests into account and to find solutions for them, which is much easier to do if you're the leader of a very powerful country, that uh, made her a figure everyone looked up to and looked to, looked to for answers. So uh, it's yet to be seen if ever, anyone can step into the show, those shoes and combine uh, both wisdom and the power to deliver wise outcomes. But let's see. Um, Thomas, 
Going back to German, uh, the D German domestic front, um, what are the likely changes, if any, for German domestic policy? And are there any realistically possible coalition combinations that are likely to lead to more dramatic uh, change that, or, or less? I mean, to be uh, to put a, uh, a provo make a provocative statement. Could one say that this uh, election might see some exciting changes of personality, but little actual change of policy? Yeah, that's a good good question. Obviously, uh, once um, in the coming weeks the sausage machine of coalition talks starts, uh, we might see actually the policy outcomes look very different uh, from uh, the debate that has taken place uh, ahead of the, the election. That's perhaps one caveat to keep in mind. Uh, I think there are, um, of course, um, some important uh, political uh, and policy uh, areas that, that will be uh, important to consider. Uh, first of all, I think the inclusion of the Greens in the government uh, will, of course, make a, a big difference on, on the climate front. Uh, just to remind everyone, uh, the Grand Coalition passed a new climate law in, in May, uh, which they had to do because of a uh, ruling by the constitutional court that the existing climate law was um, was unconstitutional. And uh, so this law from May uh, very much increases the ambition uh, uh, by, by which Germany wants to uh, achieve net zero, but also uh, how much it wants to reduce um, carbon emissions uh, by 20, 2030. Uh, but many of the measures actually have been, uh, you know, left to be defined by the next government. And I think here uh, with uh, the Green Party, especially um, uh, being being a member of a coalition, uh, they have perhaps made the boldest proposals. Um, that the phase out of, the, of uh, coal, uh, which is currently scheduled for 2038, uh, will, uh, will be demanded to be brought forward to 2030. Uh, there will be big questions about the future of the internal combustion engine. Um, some of these debates will, of course, feed into the debate on the EU level because that's that's not a national uh, competency. Uh, but I think when it comes to uh, to that uh, and a general the framework for uh, for carbon uh, prices, carbon pricing, uh, that's certainly where uh, the the Greens will uh, will uh, clearly leave their mark uh, on on the next government. Um, of course, then the combination of which party is uh, governing with the Greens, uh, that is an important question. Obviously, FDP and, and CDU are much more focused on, on having as much market mechanisms uh, in, in, in place when dealing with climate, whereas uh, the SPD is perhaps less, uh, less uh, or more interventionist, you could say, in this area. Um, another area just to, to mention is perhaps tax policy. So. Uh, SPD, Greens, um, also the Linke, of course, uh, very much um, uh, want to raise more taxes um, uh, through a combination of higher taxes for high-income earners, uh, perhaps reducing, uh, you know, some taxes for for, for lower-income households. Um, but generally, um, there are a couple of measures where, where of course, um, so the tax burden would 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 rise, especially in a in the center-left uh, government. Um, and then there are, there are more structural questions, perhaps, uh, about, for example, fiscal policy. Um, as, as you might recall, uh, Germany has quite a stringent debt break, which was mm -hmm. suspended during... Painfully uh, stringent. Pandemic. Some would say. Some would say. Um, uh, proponents of it would say that actually it's still, it, it is relatively flexible uh, because it doesn't say 
uh, you know, governments cannot take on debt. It just puts in um, a ceiling for, for how large a structural deficit can be, which takes into account, of course, uh, the, the swings uh, of the economy. Uh, but I think, you know, the suspension so far is until the end of 2022. Uh, and so I think after that, um, you know, it will be increasingly hard to justify uh, in front of the constitutional court that it should remain suspended. And that means uh, there will be a debate about, you know, how much fiscal space there's still available uh, to fund investment, like on climate, like on digitalization. Um, and, um, and that will be even more so the case because Germany will not only be then bound against by the debt break, but actually will need to deliver a quite, um, uh, quite clear repayment schedule. Uh, and, and so Germany, at least according to, to the current uh, uh, legal framework, uh, will need to need to run again, uh, I, I would say, a quite a yeah, tight, tight fiscal policy from the mid of the decade. Thank you. And I trust you've seen there's a question from Vasuki Shastri, and apologies if I've mispronounced it. Uh, he's noted that there's an ideological fluidity in, in German politics, and whether this really particularly sets Germany apart from other developed nations, in particular the US. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 true that um, that Germany, at least in the past, used to have you know two uh, quite um, clearly defined camps, um, with the center left camp of the Greens and the SPD, with the center right camp, FDP and CDU CSU. Um, after years of uh, grand coalition, uh, of course, uh, that has been uh, very much dissolved, or not fully dissolved, but at least the boundaries have become more more blurred. And now with, uh, with parties recognizing that actually if you take out the link and the AFD, uh, or if you want to basically put a cordon sanitaire around those parties, it's very hard to imagine any coalition besides the grand coalition um, that, uh, or in addition to the grand coalition, that will not involve uh, you know, a party from both sides, uh, or from both camps. Uh, and that of course, has led or forces parties uh, to show more ideological flexibility, if you will, because on you know on Sunday night when the election campaign is over, uh, people and party leaders will have to speak to each other, and they will need to hammer out at the end something that looks more or less coherent and and uh, so a, a coalition agreement that will then guide Germany over the next uh, four years. Thank you, Thomas. And Anna, can I ask you a similar question? Is what are the main likely policy effects of, uh, of the German election on Brussels? We've looked at the balance of political power, but what are the policy, possible policy effects? Well, I don't think there will be significant changes in, in Germany's EU policy because most of the parties that we've been talking about are largely pro-European. Uh, the most notable Eurosceptic party, um, Alternative für Deutschland, is unlikely to reach government due to the cordon sanitaire that other parties have created around them. Um, I just want to bring back uh, an issue that we discussed at the beginning, which is, you know, whether Die Linke would make it into the government. And, and we said it's, it's unlikely, um, but the truth is, is that the SPD has not ruled it ruled out working with them. 
Um, and although they are on the other side of the political spectrum compared to Alternative für Deutschland, they are also considered uh, Eurosceptic. But perhaps a policy area where we might see Germany have a more assertive approach is in relation to the, to the green transition and advancing uh, the EU's climate agenda, particularly if the Greens enter uh, government. So as most of you know, one of the criticisms that Merkel received was that she didn't do enough to tackle climate change. Um, and this is now likely to change and reinforce the EU's uh, green, green transition. Thank you. So a final question to both of you. Uh, what does this mean for Germany's broader international relationships, most importantly uh, with obviously the US and China? I can, ha happy to go Ladies first. Ladies first, or should I go first? Uh, Anna, you go first. Happy to go first, yes. I think that uh, what is interesting is that the SPD's manifesto um, is broadly aligned with uh, the EU's ambition to become more uh, strategically autonomous or, you know, this concept of open strategic autonomy. Um, the party is calling uh, to reduce dependency on the US and China, as well as promoting uh, the, the joint European development of strategic sectors. And in this sense, I think that the SPD is perhaps more aligned with countries like France um, than the CDU, which would most likely want to rely more on the US on issues um, such as technology policy. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's too far-fetched to say that this could help unify the views of all member states when it comes to, you know, what the EU's relationship with China or the US should be. Uh, but it's definitely, I think, a step um, in the right direction. Yes. Thomas? Yeah, I think um, that the changes could be quite, um, quite significant, especially if we see uh, the Greens and the FDP uh, joining uh, government. Both are parties that are more human rights focused. Um, uh, many people uh, know about the Greens, but I think, you know, the FDP, mm. Uh, has also uh, instincts in, in this area. And I think that will certainly have an impact on relations with China, China and Russia. Uh, I think, um, you know, the, the feeling at the moment that the German economy is too dependent on China. Um, uh, I think that is very much shared by those parties, mm -hmm. also by other parties, even though their approach is slightly different. Um, and, and, and that means that, uh, you know, Germany needs to work with other partners in the world, uh, striking new new trade deals or actually implementing uh, and ratifying uh, trade deals that the EU has already uh, struck. Um, uh, I'm also not sure, uh, you know, um, you know, um, now that France, I think, has threatened to hold back the Australia uh, free trade agreement, for example, um, that uh, that would be uh, seen as very positive uh, among those parties. Uh, you know, dealing, striking a free trade deal with uh, a fellow democracy is obviously um, uh, yeah, would make a lot of sense uh, from, from their position. Um, on Russia, of course, uh, the Greens, you know, have been always uh, against uh, Nord Stream 2. Uh, now the whole debate about uh, the rising gas prices in Europe is very much, uh, you know, you might argue due to the fact that the Russians feel that if the Greens enter government soon, they might uh, try to delay actually the approval for, for the pipeline. And um, and, and so I think in, in Moscow, it's very much received uh, or they have received the message that, 
things will be different with the Green um, Foreign Minister. I think basically that's uh, the base case. Anna-Elena Baerbock will be Foreign Minister. And so there will be a different uh, tone from Berlin. Um, on the transatlantic relationship, it's a bit uh, complicated. So there are, there are different, different aspects to that. Uh, one is that actually Merkel is seen as having failed to seize the uh, opportunities from a Biden administration. Um, Merkel has done relatively little to actually offer Biden uh, uh, something um, in, in, in return for his you know, initial uh, uh, offer that, that he would again work more closely with his transatlantic partners. Mm -hmm. uh, and perhaps that is one reason also why now AUKUS has led to such, uh, such a backlash now suddenly, uh, because he decided, okay, if, if, I, if, I, if I don't get strong European buy-in, then I probably need to do some of it actually myself. Uh, and, and follow a, a Trumpian approach. And, and, and news uh, lately in, in Germany that basically Biden wanted to call Merkel right after the election or after inauguration and Merkel was rather uh, on her way to, to her home constituency and basically declined to talk to Biden. Yes. Uh, I mean, there's a, there's a full sense that, uh, you know, Germany has not done enough to actually reinvigorate re 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 uh, the transatlantic relationship. At the same time, now we bring the Greens in back. Uh, the Greens are the party that actually has said uh, the 2% 2 uh, per GDP defense budget. It's not something they would try to achieve. And obviously that will create tensions within the German government uh, of what will be a coherent approach uh, towards the United States, which is why well, what Anna correctly said, uh, perhaps the uh, one area where, where probably all the, the parties uh, or the main parties can agree on is that uh, Europe needs to be, uh, you know, strengthened. Uh, strategic autonomy or open strategic economy, uh, autonomy uh, should be a focus. But but of course, you have a lot of then tensions even within that. A more human rights focused uh, from policy raises questions about Poland, um, for example, and so on uh, and so forth. Perhaps lastly, interestingly. Um, the UK and the relationship with the UK didn't play a role at all in the yes. campaign. Um, and so I think that is interesting and perhaps also a bit of a, a missed opportunity for the Germans and the Brits. But uh, maybe we'll see after the election whether there, there will be a bit uh, of uh, some, some fresh, fresh thinking in, in, in Berlin. Well, we shall see. Uh, thank you both very much indeed. Uh, I certainly plan on staying up on Sunday night, not least because it's an excuse to uh, drink German beer on a Sunday night. That doesn't happen uh, every week. Uh, but thank you both very much. Thank you for your insights. And we will carry on watching this very carefully indeed. Goodbye. And thank you to our audience as well. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.